Uh, having said that, I want to turn us to our attention uh, to worship through God's Word. We're in Genesis 42 this morning, and I'm going to do it a little bit differently. Typically, we read our Scripture up front, and then we you know, preach through it, but I'm going to withhold the reading of the Scripture, and I'm going to read it uh, as we go, because this is a story. I'm going to let it unfold kind of uh, organically uh, as we walk through it. If you've been with us uh, up to this point in the Genesis series, then you know that we're almost to the end of Genesis. Some of you say, thankfully, that we are, but we're almost to the end. We're dealing with the person and the story of Joseph. And uh, if you haven't been here or, or you kind of forgotten, remember Joseph was one of 12 brothers. He had a big family. He was the next to youngest. So he had a 10 older brothers and uh, they hated his guts. And in fact, when they had an opportunity one time away from uh, the, the supervision of their dad, they took Joseph, they grabbed him, they captured him, they threw him to a pit and they sold him into slavery and he ended up down in Egypt. That event plunged Joseph into 11 years of misery as a slave and as a uh, prisoner in an Egyptian uh, prison. Time passed and uh, um, Uh, The Pharaoh had a couple of dreams and Joseph gets to come and help Pharaoh interpret the dreams. And when he does, Pharaoh's mind is just blown out of the water and he exalts Joseph to be the number two person in all of this very powerful kingdom uh, of Egypt. And so God has now brought Joseph uh, from the pit of slavery uh, to the pinnacle of power in Egypt. So he was 11 years slave and prisoner, nine years now he's been serving, when we get to the point in our story, or we're picking up today, nine years he's been serving uh, as the number two guy in Egypt. So it's been 20 years since he has seen his family. So what about them? What's happened to them? So Genesis 42 kind of gives us a little segment of, you know, meanwhile, uh, back at the ranch, and we get to come back to the family. So as you're opening to Genesis 42 or getting ready to follow on the screen, uh, here's my question. How have these 10 brothers who have... 20 years been hiding the shameful secret of selling their brother into slavery and lying to their father about it. How have they gotten by? How have they made it? How have their hearts been, could, how could their hearts be so callous that they could hide such a thing for so long? What we'll see is that God himself, though they have hidden it, God himself has not forgotten it. Now, 20 years later, their day of reckoning will arrive. Let's pray for the preaching of God's word. Father, we praise you and we thank you for the breadth and the depth of your word. And I pray this morning that you would reveal yourself to us in this time through your word by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Many of you saw a movie that came out about 10 years ago, The Patriot. Mel Gibson was in the movie. He plays Revolutionary War hero Benjamin Martin. It's based on... uh, the real life of, of Francis Marion. It's, uh, it's a good movie, though, fairly uh, gory. But I actually went to see this movie in the theater in the year 2000, and the very first line of the movie struck me, and uh, I've never forgotten it. It's Benjamin Martin, and he says, I have long feared that my sins would return to haunt me, and the cost is more than I can bear. I have long feared that my sins would return to visit me, and the cost is more than I can bear. What he is saying, I think, there is actually quite powerful. He's saying that though you can hide sin, though you can cover sin, we cannot pay for it. And ultimately, a day of reckoning will come. Ultimately, a day of exposing will come. See, Joseph's brothers had been hiding for 20 years a painful secret. And now it was time to face the music for them. 
God had used, he'd brought into the world this major world famine. That's what Joseph's job was in, in Egypt, is to provide famine relief to all the people of the region. God had used this major world famine to raise Joseph from the pit of slavery to the pinnacle of power. And now he's going to use it to bring his brothers back to Egypt to confront their past. Let's look at this marvelous story that God orchestrates. Look at verse 1 and 2. It says, when Jacob, Jacob is the father of the 12 boys, when he learned there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? In other words, he's saying, you're 10 healthy boys. We're starting to starve here in this famine. Why are you sitting around doing nothing while the family starves? And the word there is a word for arguing and fighting. In other words, why are you sitting here fighting with each other? Why is all this angst? Why are you so lazy? Why are you not out doing something? That question, uh, doesn't, it's kind of a passive-aggressive question, doesn't really move them. Um, and so they kind of sit still, they don't do anything. So verse 2, he gives them more straightforward direction. He says, Behold, I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. For them, this is a matter of life and death. The brothers were content to be there as long as, it was, as, long as they were fine. But now God is going to use this famine, a matter of death in their life, to force them to come to Egypt and confront Uh, what they have done, it will be their day of reckoning. And so what do they do? Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. So why do only 10 go? Why not, uh, why not all 11? Well, little Benjamin, he is the youngest. You might remember that uh, these 12 sons, they come from four women. There was Leah, there was Rachel, there was uh, Billa, and there was Zilpah. And who did Jacob love the most? It was Rachel, right? He worked 14 years for Laban to be able to marry Rachel. And Rachel only had two of those sons, and those two sons were Joseph and Benjamin. And Joseph had been taken from him, and now his favorite, his new favorite, Benjamin, could be taken again so he keeps benjamin home he protects him because what is what happened to joseph 20 years ago still haunts him in his heart and i don't think he really trusts the other 10 all that much verse 5 thus the sons of israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine had reached out to the land of canaan they were living in canaan and so they left they went to egypt to find relief to find food you got to remember there's no there's no grocery stores no 7-elevens i mean you have to imagine that your refrigerator is completely bare your pantry is completely bare that stomach pains are, of hunger are growing and growing and growing and now it really is a matter of life and death and so the brothers pack up and they take their trip and they head to egypt to see because they heard this rumor there might be food somewhere in the world and therefore we're going to go find it and they pack up and they go out and take this trip and you see the text says that there were many others there coming in it's kind of like i it's i picture it like a red cross or a u.n refugee camp where people are just streaming into egypt to get food and i put a picture here in the slides this is these are rwandan refugees but you kind of get a picture of what it might have looked like for people just to be streaming to egypt because they were starving they were looking for food so now is where the story really starts to turn where it really starts to get good pick it up in verse six it says, now Joseph was the governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and they bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. They need food to live. They make this long trip. They get to the governor. They bow down to him to ask him for food. And guess who it is? It's their brother. It's Joseph. It's the one they sold into slavery 20 years ago. If they're going to live, if they're going to get food they got to go through him. they got to go through their little brother who they sold into slavery so long 
ago. And then verse 7. It says, Joseph saw his brothers, and he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers, and he spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, the land of Canaan to buy food. Now picture Joseph. He's there working. He's the famine relief guy. He's there working, handing out food to everyone, and all of a sudden he lays his eyes on the ten men that betrayed him. Ten men that betrayed him uh, 20 years ago. He'd probably seen their faces in his nightmares for all these years. And of course, so when he lays eyes on them here, he recognizes them uh, uh, immediately. He recognizes them quickly. The question I had to ask myself and I'm asking you is that what, what would you have done? If you're Joseph and there you have, you have all the power in the world and they're in the palm of your hand. And 20 years ago, these are the people that totally socked it to you. What would you have done? I can imagine that the bitterness and the anger in my heart would have just been welling up and uh, that I would have used that to, uh, to, to destroy them. I mean, I get angry and bitter over a little small thing. I still remember 10 years ago, a friend of mine from high school borrowed $200 from me and never paid it back. And I'm bitter about that still today. It's 10 years later. I still lie awake at night and think about that $200, what I could do with it. But this is 20 years of his life. And the point that I would make, Tom preached on this last week, so I won't say it long, but if we, if, you and I don't, if we don't believe in God's providence, if we don't believe that He lovingly controls and cares for all of us, for all His people, we will never get through life. We will never get through the bitter, the bitter disappointments and the betrayals that come through life. We'll never be able to deal with them. Instead, they will haunt us. But Joseph seems he's dealt with this, and he recognizes his brothers, and the question is, are they going to recognize him? He saw them, but do they, are they going to know who he is? Verse 8. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. How could this be? I mean, how could they not recognize you know, their own brother, the guy they lived with for 17 years? There's a lot of ways. I kind of put a picture in here that's kind of a rendering of just what it might have looked like. And you can see that, you know, Joseph would have been dressed differently. I mean, he's 20 years older. You look at your pictures between 17 and 37, probably a lot different. You know, he wouldn't have had a beard like the Hebrews did. He would have had all this special clothing, special position, all these kinds of, of things, uh, speaking a different language. And so uh, they don't recognize him. But even with all that, I still kind of look at it and think, you know, one of the 10, I mean, one of those 10 really should have said, you know what, this guy looks a little bit familiar unless unless over the past 20 years they had blotted him out of their memory unless for the past 20 years just to live with themselves they had seared their consciences just so they could get by they would have recognized him i think unless their hearts had become so callous that they'd basically completely forgotten him could no longer even picture his face so I think the real reason they didn't recognize him was not his hair or his dress or his beard or his language. It was their sin. Their sin that had hardened their hearts and made them callous over the point of so many years. I mean, think about it. Right after they sold Joseph into slavery, never to see him again, how often do you think they thought about this? How often do you think they, they lied awake at night and thought about what they had done? How often do you think they wondered what, what became of him? How often do you think they saw the pain on their father's face having lost a son? What, what kind of mental gymnastics do you have to engage in to do something like this and then keep it secret for 20 
years, I'm assuming, I'm assuming they probably justified their actions, saying, you know, he really did deserve it. He really was a jerk of a kid. He really deserved what we did to him. I mean, maybe he's even, you know, better off now in his other family than he would have been uh, with us. Maybe he's happier there. You know, at least we didn't kill him. We could have killed him. Could have done worse. You know, at least I'm kind of around the house. I'm helping out. I'm doing more things. I'm trying to, you know, make up for this. I mean, how often do you think they heard Joseph's cries for help in their sleep? At first, I would say probably a lot, but after 20 years, the, gr- the cries had grown dim. After 20 years, their consciences were seared because they kept time and again stuffing the voice of their conscience deep down inside, and now their sin is returning to visit them, and the cost is more than they can bear. It is a day of reckoning for them. And here, I think what we see is a very vivid picture of what hidden sin does, what it really looks like in my life and in your life. Uh, hiding, uh, hidden sin, hiding, it hardens our hearts and it alienates us from other people. It hardens us, it alienates us. Their, their past sin, it remained, un, it remained hidden, it remained unspoken, and so they became callous and hard. If you remember back to, to Genesis 37, you remember what they did when they captured Joseph? They captured him, they put him in the pit, they're ready to sell him into slavery, and then it says, I think it's in verse 25, then they sat down to eat. They sat down for lunch. They're about to sell their brother into slavery, and the next thing out of their mouth is, please pass the mashed potatoes. That is a callous, that is a callous, cold heart. That is a seared conscience that's built up over 20 years. And if you remember back to verse 1, what I said, when Jacob says, why do you sit there staring at each other? He's saying, why? the word is arguing with each other. There's all this alienation. There's all this fighting. The bitterness is built up, and the fact that they've had to share and hold this secret together uh, for the ten of them for all these long years. They sit arguing and alienated as a family. And if you and I try to hide our sin, if we try to keep our skeletons in the closet, we try to tamp it back, we try to press down the voice of our inner conscience as it speaks to us, uh, over time it will mess you up. It will mess us up spiritually, emotionally, uh, and personally. It will damage you. It will actually arrest your development, arrest your spiritual development. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a great quote about this, about how our choices uh, affect us. It's going to be on the screen. I'm going to read it to you. Uh, it's, it's fairly long, but, uh, but you can follow along. C.S. Lewis says this, People often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargain in which God says, If you keep a lot of rules, then I'll reward you. And if you don't, then I'll do the other thing. I don't think this is the best way of looking at it. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to one state or the other. Wow. I mean, that, that's a big statement. And the brothers, the ten brothers, have essentially progressed to that latter state. They're at war with one another. They're at war with God. Their sin is hidden and locked away. Uh, the best way I think I can illustrate this for you is uh, through analogy. If you think about 
Um, you know, if you, if you have a, 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 a pipe at home that gets clogged, a drain that gets clogged, hidden sin is kind of like that. It's like a clog deep down in the pipes below your sink. Now, you look at the sink on the outside, and it still looks fine, right? The sink looks fine. It looks like a normally functioning sink. But once that clog develops, and you barely get water, you know, water's only seeping through, and everything else stop, stops, starts backing up. And until a plumber comes and takes, you know, the plumber snake and reaches down and sucks that clog out, then everything else is arrested. And this is kind of what, I mean, this is a picture of what hidden sin will do to you. It's especially true today. I think it's especially true today because so many of our temptations have this illusion of anonymity. We have this illusion that we can build our private worlds, that we can commit a victimless crimes as if it has no effect on anyone Else, and I think one of the biggest the biggest examples of this uh, is pornography. I know that that makes a lot of us uncomfortable, but so many men, and even increasing number of women, are becoming addicted to pornography because it's something hidden that we can do, keep hidden on a basement computer, hidden on an iPhone, hidden uh, somewhere else. And we do that, and we lie to ourselves. We pretend it's harmless. We pretend it won't hurt anyone. But what it does over time is it hardens our hearts. And it alienates us from other people. That's why families are being uh, torn apart by that addiction. And spiritual growth is being arrested. That's why Jesus says in Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In other words, uh, blessed are those who have their hearts unclogged from the, 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 the clog. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, because it's a better, a greater pleasure to be able to see God than to engage in any temptation that the world has to offer. And so this morning, if you're, if you're looking at your life and you're thinking, you're frustrated, you're thinking, why am I not growing as a Christian? Why am I kind of stagnant in my faith? Why, why don't I have the passion I used to have? Why is things kind of, you know, dim and, and I don't love the Word of God and the worship of God and the people of God in kind of the same way that I used to? Why have I seen such little progress in dealing with uh, my, my anger, my control issues, my, my lust? Why have I seen such little progress? And the answer might be that you haven't yet learned to repent. Your sin is remaining hidden somewhere deep inside in the darkness and hasn't been exposed by the light of the gospel. And you might say, wait a minute, now I I repented 10 years ago when I became a Christian. I confessed my sins, I asked for forgiveness. That was 10 years ago when I became a Christian. Isn't that the time, that's the only time I do that, right? No, that is one of the biggest lies that evangelical church has bought into in the last uh, 100 years. You think about Martin Luther, the very first of his 95 theses that he nailed to the church at the start of the Reformation, you know what it said? When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he meant all of the Christian life would be one of repentance. I heard a pastor recently who was giving a conference. Somebody asked him, how can I be the best Christian I can be? And without hesitation, he said, you become the best repenter you can be. It's important. And the reason is because sin clogs our lives. It's deep inside. And repentance is this radical turnabout, this radical reversal that sucks the clog out of the pipe and lets the water flow again but sin is so deceptive and how it works that we can look so perfect on the outside like the sink just looks nice until you start running water in it we look so perfect on the outside very satisfied very religious very moral as it were and yet and yet of course this is what you know jesus warned us of you who clean the cup on the outside but on the inside it's still dirty it's like every morning you know you use your favorite coffee mug and you, you drink your coffee, and then you just wipe the outside of the mug and sit it there and let it get stained, and you know, mold starts growing, and you just keep pouring coffee and drinking it. That's kind of the picture that Jesus is giving there. He's saying repentance is grace. 
Repentance is what cleans the cup. Repentance is what unclogs the drain. Repentance is what reaching, reaches out and grabs hold of grace. And the question this morning is, are we squelching, are we searing our consciences? Has your heart become hardened? Has it become distant from the things of Christ? Have you learned to, to repent daily? Well, Joseph's ten brothers had let their hearts become warped and, and hardened. It was destroying their family. So what was going to happen to them before Joseph, who they didn't recognize? Look at verse 9. It says, Joseph remembered the dreams he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, you're spies, you've come to see the nakedness of the land. What dreams is he talking about? Remember back to 37, Joseph has two dreams. He said to the brothers very proudly, I saw your 11 sheaves bowing down to me, and then I saw you 11 stars bowing, you know, bowing down to me. Those are the dreams. And so when he sees them come and bow down before him, he says, boom, the dream just came true. Except there's not 11, there's only 10. There's not 11, there's only 10. And so Joseph devised a strategy to get uh, all 11 of them there because that is the fulfillment of the prophetic dream that came. And of course, so what he does is accuse them of being a spy. Why would he do that? That's what they accused him of back in chapter 37. Remember, he was tattletaling uh, on them. He brought a bad report to their father. He was a spy. And if you're an older sibling, you know every younger sibling in the family is a spy. That's their job. That's just what they do. I'm the oldest in my family, and I knew that when I came home, that my brother and I would be home, and, and my, when, we'd have like two, three hours before my parents got there. And that when my parents got there, my brother was going to open a ledger up and start telling everything that I'd done wrong when my parents got there because all you younger ones out there, we know. You're spies. And so <laughs> Joseph was the spy, and uh, they accused him of being a spy. So now he flips the tables, and he says, oh, you're spies. You're here to see the nakedness of the land. You're here to see the, the famine, basically, in Egypt. And of course, verse 10 and 11, they refuse this. They say, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. In other words, it doesn't make any sense to be 10 brothers coming to be spies. If you're a spy, you're going to be inconspicuous. You know, James Bond, you're working by yourself, maybe in pairs, but not 10 of us. That's just too out in the open. It's too overt. Therefore, there's no way we could be spies. But in verses 12 and 13, he accuses them again, and uh, he doesn't let up. So he says, no, no, it's the nakedness of the land you've come to see. And they said, no, we're your... So then they start, they got to give him some more information. They're, they're kind of, you know, fighting for their lives here. They say, we're your servants. We're 12 brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. They reveal they're actually not 10 brothers. They're actually 12 brothers. One younger brother's at home, and then they say this bone-chilling statement. One is no more. They're standing before the one who is no more. Joseph is the one who is no more. And I don't know how he restrains himself at this point. I don't know how he keeps it to himself, uh, but he does. And so he proposes the test of their statement. Verses 14 14 to 17. He says, Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. So by this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you will not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, let him bring your brother, and while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you were spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So he says, here's the plan, here's the test. I'll keep nine of you, I'll send one home, you get Benjamin, bring him back. We'll see if you're telling the truth or not. And I'll put you in prison, you'll get three days to think about it. But when the time is up, when the three days is up, Joseph actually changes the plans on them. And if you know anything about kind of keeping hostages, this is 
standard practice even today. You, you accuse them, accuse them, accuse them, then you change the plan. We're going to do this. No, we change the plans. We're going to do, do that. And so he flips the plan. He proposes a little different plan in verses 18 to 20. So it says, On the third day, Joseph said to them, this is the day they get out of prison, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household. Bring your youngest brother to me and then your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. So now the plan's reversed. You have to uh, get one person to stay here with Joseph and the rest get some food to take to the family. They get to go back. Then they're supposed to come and bring Benjamin uh, back home with them. And I think, you know, this time they had three days in prison. It must have been very difficult for them because everybody else is coming, going, buying, selling, getting food, no problems. But when they try to do it, they get falsely accused and arrested. And they've got to be looking around going, what in the world is going on here? And so what they do is they choose Simeon to stay. And Joseph brings Simeon. He binds Simeon before them. He chains him up. And in all this, I think Joseph is holding up a mirror to them. He's starting to break open the hardness of their hearts by holding up a mirror to them of what they did to him. You see, when they threw Joseph in the pit, he cried out to them. And now they are crying out to him. When they threw Joseph in the pit, they had to go home to Jacob and explain to Jacob how they were one brother short. And now they're going to have to go home and explain to Jacob how they're one brother short because Simeon won't be there. When he binds Simeon in front of them, it reminds them of how they bound him Uh, in front of them. And suddenly, when all this happens, it all comes home. All the chickens come to roost. Everything, Everything comes back to them in their mind. Their sin suddenly returns to visit them. And the cost is certainly more than they can bear. The day of reckoning arrives. So listen to the conversation they have. There's 21 and 22. It says, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And they're talking about Joseph. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. You hear it? His distress, now our distress. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Suddenly, their hearts are breaking open again. Suddenly, they can hear the cries of Joseph breaking out again. And what I want you to see here is that how God uses, 20 years later, this worldwide famine to bring them to this place, to bring them to this confrontation with their, with their past, to this day of reckoning. He uses a famine to bring them, to show them their persistent disobedience and their rebellion. And they get their sin held up to them in a mirror, as it were. And I will say that one of the most merciful, gracious things that God can do for you and me is to expose our sin for us, to hold it up in a mirror, to let us see it. And and I think we get those opportunities constantly, day in, day out, through conversations, people, uh, events, things that happen, and just light bulbs should go on and we should see a mirror of ourselves. One of the ways this happens, I think, is obviously through kids. You know, yesterday morning I'm having uh, breakfast with my two boys and uh, our four-year-old Jude, uh, he he said to me, just out of the blue, Daddy... Jesus is always happy. I said, yeah. And he said, even if I do something bad, Jesus can still be happy with me. I said, yeah. And he said, Jesus will be happy, but only mommy and daddy will be mean. (laughs) It's just a mirror, you know. Your words right back to you. 
That's kind of a small thing. It's kind of a humorous thing. But still, I have to do business with that mirror and say, how is my son receiving my discipline? Are we listening or are our hearts hardened? These ten brothers, the ice is beginning to break. They're beginning to thaw. They're coming out of hiding. Their hearts are softening. They admit their guilt. They say, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. As another pastor, Alistair Begg, says, the first sign of an awakening conscience is the admission of personal guilt. The first sign of an awakening conscience is the admission of personal guilt. It's not just, you know, I wish that wouldn't have happened, or maybe we should have handled that situation a little differently. It's the admission of personal guilt before a holy God. We are guilty of His blood, and we're willing to pay the cost. Now, I know it's not cool, it's not trendy to talk about guilt, you know, in this day and age. Modern people don't really talk about that. But we have to see that guilt is really one of the the biggest problems that faces our world. A century ago, people said, you know, we need to get rid of guilt. We can get rid of guilt if we get rid of sin. And so they try to convince the world that there's no such thing as right and wrong because there's no such thing as right and wrong. Then what do you have to feel guilty about? But if you look at reports from counselors and psychiatrists and psychologists, they still report this massive amount on their patients and clients of guilt overriding guilt the only difference being now that they are so confused about what in the world they're guilty for they don't know what they're guilty for despite this guilt is a huge problem in our lives and i know some of you will say there go the christians again talking about guilt always trying to put people on a guilt trip and i say no i won't let that be that's not the christian view of guilt that's the world's conception of you Uh, of guilt the christian view of guilt is that guilt is there to awaken our conscience to wake us from our slumber and then to see and see provision for that guilt in god in the work of christ to be set free from that that's why the gospel is so powerful as it calls us out of hiding it says you can be free you can live a life without regret you can be free of guilt i know many of you may have been hiding maybe you're pretending 5 10 15 20 years of your life you spent but the gospel says you can come out the gospel says you can join the parade of sinners the gospel says you can come and join god's party of sinners in god's grace i know that it many of us we we hide around certain people we base our lives off of our our performance we 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 live out of others expectations we fear to admit the truth this is not the gospel the reason justification by grace through faith is it's not just a tenet of the faith. It is a banner of freedom that welcomes us out of sin, out of, out of guilt, and into the marvelous grace of God. So the reason I say that one of the most merciful things God can do is expose our sin is because only exposed sin has a remedy. Only exposed sin actually has a provision. Only a skeleton out of the closet can actually be dealt with. Only an open wound can actually be treated. And the remedy is Christ himself. If you're not, if this morning you're saying, I'm, I don't know if I'm a Christian, I'm not, maybe I'm not a Christian, then maybe today is your day of reckoning. Maybe today is the day your conscience awakens for the first time. That you see your guilt and that you run to Christ, you embrace a life without regret. The day of reckoning, that you come to know Christ. And if you are a Christian this morning, maybe today is a different kind of reckoning. Maybe it's the day when the hardness of your heart begins to break, when the, when the complacency begins to fall away, when the dry spell dies and you begin to learn to live in the freedom of repentance. For Joseph's brothers, it's strange. The one against whom they have sinned, Joseph, is the one that holds their lives in his hand. 
And it's, it's striking because it's the same for us. The one against whom we have sinned, Jesus, holds our lives in our hands. We say, oh, I would have never done that. I would have never sold my brother to slavery. Well, the Bible says Jesus is our older brother. We didn't only spurn him. We didn't only sell him to slavery. We nailed him to a cross. Remember the opening quote from Benjamin Martin? I have long feared that my sins would return to visit me, and the cost would be more than I could bear. He was right. The cost is more than I can bear, more than you can bear. But ah, there is one who has borne it. There is one who did bear it. He holds our lives in his hands, and he doesn't crush us. Instead, he himself becomes the remedy for our guilt, for our sin, for our hardened hearts. Don't let your religiosity and your moralism keep you away. The banquet is set, but it's only for the hungry. The choice wine is prepared, but it's only for the thirsty. The physician is here, but he will only see the sick. Could today be a day of reckoning? I'm going to give us a moment of silent prayer as we close. Father, open our hearts to see our sin. But as we see our sin, may we, our eyes go to the cross to see our Savior who died for us and saved us. In Jesus' name, amen.